All right, everybody. I'm here with Morgan Fries, and I know you as a musician and you write, but you're also um, going to school to be a dietitian. Am I correct? Yeah, yeah. So I am um, in my coming up on my last year for my bachelor's in Davis for mm -hmm. clinical nutrition. So um, they actually make you complete a master's now to be a registered dietitian. So I still have that. And then, yes, nice. that career. <laughs> Sweet. Well, uh, what what kind of got you interested in in like this specific like field? I, I guess because did, um, like, did you kind of gravitate towards it, or did it kind of just you know you had to choose something? So you yeah, actually, like I don't know, it has like kind of a long genesis. I uh, was like n I could care less about that stuff in high mm -hmm. school. Like I would like skip pee and shit, um, but. Uh, I don't know, like when I was 15, I got really into like weightlifting and bodybuilding for like, I don't know, I feel like really typical reasons. I'm like, oh, I want to look good. Yeah, yeah. But, um, so I did that. I did a bodybuilding competition when I was 17 and that was like really hard, but good. And um, then I, uh, I actually like got kind of sick when I was older. I had, I have a couple like autoimmune conditions. Mm -hmm. And so um, surrounding that, I got really, I had to do a lot of research because um, like, I feel like our approach to chronic illnesses is usually they'll have like some kind of myriad of medications for people and it's really frustrating. And so I put a lot of research into nutrition and health because it was already something I was into as a hobby. Mm -hmm. And so, um, something I was really passionate about and I was like okay I want to help other people with this stuff and then like even furthering that like now this last year with like the political climate and everything I am really I've like seen all the avenues it can be helpful like I have become more passionate about like volunteering at food banks and like I want to start helping with like education for nutrition and like being able to get food to people in need so there's like so many different avenues from my life that have like helped me like decide on that as a career yeah um so I kind of want to dive right into just the yeah. way that like the kind of like medical field and just kind of public discourse when it comes to because like the issue of chronic illness seems like on one hand I think I see like a ton of people um, you know, I don't want to like, not like speak, like speak ill of anyone, but yeah, it's like everyone, a lot of people have issues now that they're like saying, yeah, I'm chronically ill. Like I've got this or that or lupus or this. And, you know, it's like, I'm not judging them, but it feels like there's like, in a way, these issues are either really undiagnosed or they're just not being dealt with. Like, it just seems like there's such an explosion of these types of illnesses. Like, you know, Chloe, like my girlfriend, she, she has, uh, um, like stomach problems relating to dairy and gluten. And it took her like you, it took her years of just kind of like, um, doing her own research and really figuring out and really like challenging a lot of assumptions that you kind of get growing up, you know, related to like the food pyramid and things like that. Um, and so I just kind of want to get like your take on why, like why people specifically seem to have more and I mean, I don't, you probably know the actual date on this, but like why people seem to have more chronic illnesses, like a, I think at a younger age now, it kind of seems. Yeah. So God, there's, I don't think there's any black and white answer for this. And mm -hmm. so often I get really infuriated because I feel like there's like these, I feel 
I have kind of a concept to myself as though we've eradicated religion and replaced it with dogma about things like nutrition and politics. And so people get really dogmatic about nutrition, like either being you're in the like FDA food pyramid field or the organic field. And to me, I think everything's a tool and everything's like has its place. Mm -hmm. And so coming into like chronic illnesses and stuff, um, I think a big thing is that a lot of stuff was undiagnosed for quite some time. Like we now have so many more tools at our disposal to get people properly diagnosed. I think health is more of a almost hobby for people where people are getting more into taking care of their health. Like, you know, we don't have everybody smoking cigarettes while pregnant or anymore, just education's becoming more like that. Yeah. Yeah. But in addition, I do. Yeah. I believe our lifestyles and I'm very undereducated on this. Like there's so many different avenues you could approach it from, but yeah, our current lifestyles do kind of create a state of disease for a lot of people. And it goes very much beyond nutrition, um, just even down to how how we think and the way we manage stress. I think that's oh, such a massive piece of the puzzle and you can really be eating perfectly. And if your internal dialogue and the stress you put on yourself mm-hmm. is, um, you know, not adjacent with like a happy life then that will make you sicker than anything and we have um you know the lifestyles we have is so much faster paced and every year it becomes more and more fast paced and even the way we seek information or socialize now is so different over like media and stuff even this whole year with covid it really creates a state of like chronic illness for a lot of people yeah so it's it's you know it's our nutrition of course but then just the way we live life and connect to and i think a lot um, actually can you turn down the my voice a little bit on your laptop just for the yeah. feedback okay sweet thank you um yeah no i com- i completely agree i think that like in the, in the United States, especially, we kind of look at health as, you know, we put like a bandaid on a bleeding artery, like, you know, it's like, okay, if you're, and I mean, this has kind of been my two cents about the COVID too. It's like, I tried to use this and I, and I understand too, that like not everyone's in this position. So it's like, I approach it, I try and be like empathetic when I you know approach it like this, but you know, I don't feel like there's been really that much emphasis on like getting into shape. And I think that one of the like, honestly, one of the biggest reasons, like, yeah, there's a ton of political failure around this whole issue, but people are just really unhealthy in this country. And it's, it's like, we're in this kind of weird place where on one hand, like, gym culture and like, all like everyone has, like, every other person has like a fitness Instagram or something now. But there's still like a ton of people who, who aren't getting like the basic, um, who have this like kind of like myopic idea of what it means to be healthy. It's like, I don't know. It's, I do think that lifestyle factors too. I mean, just basically like, I mean, being stuck in your house all year, not getting vitamin D. um, I mean, I think these issues are really crucial and it's just been odd seeing the way that it's been kind of discussed in like the political climate, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. See, I feel like, I mean, I feel like this goes for so many things these days, but it, delves over into the health um, arena of things too, is people really uh, are allergic to nuance now. And so with COVID, um, of course, mitigation and like health precautions were necessary for certain things, but 
it's yeah i almost noticed as if you brought up something about like hey like there are things you can do to improve your health and lessen your chances of a high mortality people think you're like an anti-masker and it's like you can advocate for both things right, uh, both are important and um I mean, we have plenty of science to back that up too on like how you can reduce your risk. And this doesn't even involve losing weight um, or necessarily changing um, intrinsic things about your health because some people are disabled or overweight or ill mm -hmm. and can't really help that because it's genetic. Right. But um, yeah, no, definitely. And I also agree that I think that people are kind of myopic with approaching health. And I think it makes it kind of like, seem like Mount Everest to some people because people are either really hard on it like make it their whole identity or they say fuck it and drink Mountain Dew and smoke cigarettes and stay up at three in the morning when really like it just is those small little habits of taking care of yourself often and right out of the gate they're like I want to get healthy um this protein powder should I do keto should I do this what's the best workout plan and I'm like okay, calm down. You need to just really just start drinking some water and spend some time in the sun and maybe get five servings of vegetables. Start there. Because I think people get, when you try to change so much at once, it's so overwhelming and people just throw their hands up because they're like, fuck this, I can't accomplish this. And so I think it's just learning to integrate small, reasonable habits and then if you have the financial disposable and time and you know mental integrity to like go further with it awesome not everybody needs to be lance armstrong to live like a healthy lifestyle though i would say like um so if someone is kind of living like eating your standard american uh like kind of standard processed food american diet actually well, actually my, my stepdad's a good example of this because he's like he's in construction and he's been kind of eating bologna sandwiches and drinking three Pepsis a day for his whole life. You know, that's kind of like how he was raised. Um, yeah. And like he's, he's looks healthy, but like his, he's going through this change now where he's trying to eliminate that. And like, if, so if someone like him, like, how would you, how would you recommend like weaning? Cause a lot of that's psychol psychological too. I mean, there's addictive qualities to food too. And it's like, how would, how would you go into that into like someone who's dealing with, changing such a significant part of their lifestyle would you recommend like a specific diet like or is it is it just kind of like okay just eat don't eat processed shit is there is it yeah um i think i would always approach things especially with people who don't have like the tools to immediately start going to whole foods and doing hot yoga for hours a day it's just what small steps can you reasonably do because something is always better than nothing so with anyone who's like starting off from like really terrible American diet, I wouldn't, I think some really uh, ubiquitous things to always work on um, if you're concerned about like obesity or having issues with overindulgence and weight, I think just learning about what a normal portion size is, is such a fundamental start for so many people, as well as maybe just beginning to substitute some beverages with water as well as making sure you get a few servings of vegetable or fruit in a day and i think those three things would help people more than they want to believe they everybody thinks you need to get super fancy and i it's very fundamental and then from there maybe he could you know find a type of exercise he enjoys or you know 
supplementation yeah yeah like how how important too because this gets kind of you know this is like a hot topic lately but um like how important is like gut microbiome health and yeah so so many things in nutrition you will go on instagram and people are like i'm an expert on this um yeah one of my biggest things i would stop following anyone (laughs) that doesn't have like some type of bachelor's research in nutrition, registered dietitians, people have made an entire profit off of having zero fucking education and speaking like an expert. Uh, I heard something long ago in the science community, the more someone says, I don't know to a question, the wiser they are. And I actually, I believe that. So far as the consensus on gut health, there is, it's kind of like the bottom of the ocean. There is so much we don't know yet. Right. We do know, though, um, that it is. there's a lot of links to immunity, mental health, and different factors of health that it influences. We know that gut health is, um, it ranges from person to person, depending on the kind of diet they ate growing up, um, antibiotic use, and um, it influences digestion. So we know that it, ha- it plays a role in a lot, but like, I would definitely avoid any sweeping claims definitively about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, I was, I was reading something about how um, someone had, I can't remember what they were, maybe it was Crohn's disease, but they got like a fecal transplant, Mm -hmm. which was kind of interesting, you know, taking someone else's poop and putting it in their, in their stomach to like give, like they had, they lacked certain bacteria um, in their stomach. And I mean, it's just like nutrition to me is just, I'm, you know, I'm, I go to the gym, I try and stay fit too, but it just seems like such a, it's, there's so much we don't know, like you just said, and everyone's got the, everyone thinks they have the answer and there's a million, you know, you can cherry pick whatever study or whatever data you want to almost, you know, to back up your claim, but it's just like such a broad topic, you know, and I mean, kind of like, I kind of want to touch like where I want to go next is kind of focus on, um, so I think you kind of have two, you have like people who are really down the vegan rabbit hole, mm-hmm. you know, and you have people who are kind of surprisingly down the, uh, I guess, I don't know, really down like the carnivore rabbit hole, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I, me personally, I can't see either extreme being particularly uh, like helpful. I mean, I, but I don't know the research, you know, I think that they're, yeah, I mean, there's yeah there's certainly research for um both sides of the argument and um you know there's decades of research supporting veganism because we had such a um huge model um like the saturated fat cholesterol heart disease model which was such a huge proponent of that and then on the controversial side we have the carnivore diet and yeah i think the reason there's i think Personally, nutrition's extremely individualistic. And one thing's not gonna work for everyone. I think that's why it's so important for there to be funding for health resources so people can get educated, people can work with a professional and find out like their specific requirements. Would you ha- would you suggest someone doing sorry to interrupt, but like would you suggest someone doing like a um like a blood, like a like a blood test or something to kind of see what diet might work best for them yeah so so much of it is trial and error too because like people we want to think of a diet like just biologically what would work with you but like such a massive part of like coaching people into 
um, adopting diets is adherence because no matter how great your diet is, if it's not something you can happily adhere to for the, like your lifespan, totally. then it's useless right. because you need to, yeah. So it's, the, it's what, yeah, exactly. Um, I think, I think if, like I said, like starting off with the small things. So if you're coming from like poor health, I think starting off with the basics that I aforementioned earlier in this video mm-hmm. is important. But yeah, if you are, if, especially if you have some kind of like ment or illness going on, um, yeah, I think blood testing is extremely important before you start like supplementing and all of that. That is, would be the next step if you're like ill and you're wanting to get to the root cause of things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, I mean, just for my own self, it's like, I had, I had, I've had a lot of problems sleeping in the last few years and like certain dietary changes, like eating carbs closer to what going to sleep has really helped me. Like kind of strange. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just weird how, um, you know, there's such a lack of knowledge and understanding that you, you don't get this real, you don't get this education in school, really, you know, um, and it's like that, that little piece of knowledge would have saved my ass, like, so many years of insomnia and poor night's sleep, because, I mean, that and, and a few other things, and mindfulness and uh, meditation, which, I, again, I think is underutilized in terms of, like, an overall kind of holistic, like, whole approach to wellness, you know, um, but, yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, that's why it's so important to when you're uh, trying to, you know, start ameliorating your health and stuff. Um, I'd I'll say it a hundred times because I've had to learn this too. It does not matter how perfect your diet is if you are like the lifestyle you're living is still needs help with like your sleep, your stress, all of that. You will not be like making the headway you want to make in recovering yeah. from whatever like ailment um is you know affecting you yeah so actually i'd kind of i'd like to talk about stress a little bit more because i think like so many people are i mean obviously in like really stressful situations and um yeah i just kind of like to like dive deeper if you if if you're willing dive deeper into um like the effects that stress actually has on the body and like i don't know do you want to want to Take, take that away if you uh get yeah yeah I mean I'm no um you know physiology totally, expert totally. but of course um so stress you know uh, you could ask anyone we have decades of research long-term chronic stress which is you know kind of characterized physiologically by elevated cortisol and epinephrine um causes health issues um ranging from even it can cause like diabetic kind of uh, insulin resistance in your blood, um, you know, poor sleep, exhaustion, um, a lot like it, it, honestly, any disease, it can make it worse. So also if you're having chronic illnesses and autoimmune conditions, it makes it worse. And I ran into this in my own um, kind of journey, quote unquote, with a uh, working on my chronic illnesses is so often they'd be like, yeah, your diet's not the problem. It's the fact that you um, are literally like pacing around the house 24 seven, like always stressed out about everything. And um, I got to a point where one of my doctors was like, yeah, honestly, the only thing you need to do is like go outside and hug a tree or something. Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes it's that simple, you know, honestly, it's like, just slow down. We're so like, plugged into needing to do things at all like every single time every single minute of the day be on our phones um 
yeah, it's it's just it's a really crazy. It's like I kind of have to keep reminding myself that everyone is just going through this new sort of experiment in like a changing of conscious. I don't like using the term like changing of consciousness because it's very uh, like hippie, like bro hippie. But um, you know, it kind of is though. It's like we're we're really like we have no idea what this world is going to do to us long term. Like we're kind of just putting our front foot in and that's kind of it. And I think there's like definitely some good things like COVID it's been, it's, I know a lot of people have been able to work from home and I think that's like a step in the right direction, not having to sit in, not having to sit in a car, like adding another two hours of, you know, lethargic sitting down every day. I mean, that kind of stuff is good, but you know, also too, it's like a lot of unintended, unintended consequences by the fact that we're just plugged into screens all the time. And, yeah. yeah, I feel like we have, um, you know, the state of things economically and just the state of the world, how things go is we've prioritized productivity over fulfillment. Yeah. And so, yeah, people don't really experience a type of downtime that is actually relaxing because when you are scrolling through your phone it's not really it's consistently processing like a billion bits of information it's not actually very relaxing but that's all of our choices of free time now so yeah i know everything we do kind of in life is uh so um stress inducing still so like you know as well as working on diet like there's a few things you can do like getting exercise laughing, having a good sex life and sleeping. And that's pretty much the best things you can do. The holy holy trinity. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Absolutely. I was, I was kind of, uh, I don't know if you know who Andrew Huberman is, but um, he's a, he's the lead. He's the um, director of the like neuroscience research lab at Stanford. And he's cool because he's, he's like this savant scientist but he can communicate his ideas like really effectively and he's he is very good like um with language so he just has a way of like he's he's a good science communicator and he was talking about how um i was like kind of digging through some of his talks just kind of in preparation for this and he was talking about how like food and like all these different things like social media every time we pick up our phone um and actually he uses the example of like alcohol too so it's like the first time you drink it's like you're getting the the biggest rush of dopamine related to that specific activity that you will ever get and it's all downhill from there and so like Mm -hmm. as as you continue that pattern as you continue to pick up your phone or as you continue you know as people start to like your post or whatever it is you're getting a little bit less dopamine every time and a little bit more of chemicals that he is that he was associating with like feelings of fear and um anxiety and but you're like compelled to keep doing it because that's how we're, you know, physiologically and biologically, it's like, yeah, and I think such a big tool of health that we have all, because there's so many agents that allow us to completely numb and distract ourselves from really paying attention to ourselves, and I think for you to find things that are good for your own health requires you to take some time to tune in and listen to yourself, And when you're constantly reaching for a phone or stimulants or a drink or a distraction, you really fail to do that. And it's important to kind of pay attention to how you feel after things. Yeah. Um, Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think 
people even going past health but like just creativity people don't really allow themselves to get bored anymore and one of the best things you really can do to get in tune with your body kind of find out what you need and also give your mind a break is literally just go sit outside with nothing in your hand not a book nothing else for like 10 minutes Mm -hmm. or I even started driving without music or something and it's very weird um but if you think back to when you were a child and how absolutely incredible it was that your parents could put you in a backyard with just grass and you could like create a whole world in your head for like five hours the more you can get back in touch with that i think that's amazing for stress and health but also anybody who creates anything any creators writers you have to allow yourself to be bored to start creating yeah and really be able to like it's it's such a lost skill i think being able to connect with your mind in like the present moment you know just even <laughs> sitting down like you said sitting down for 10 minutes or um like i like to go on drives like you know chloe and i will just be like yeah let's go on a drive you know we'll drive for like just do a loop go see the river and back and sometimes we won't even talk we'll just be in our heads but it's good it's like therapeutic and you don't realize how often you get these thoughts coming into your head that are kind of they're just i mean we could go way down the whole free will and that whole rabbit hole because i mean it's interesting to me but it's it's a little dense but like you know, you don't like the thought actually doesn't really exist. It's just kind of in your head and then out of it, it could be negative or positive. And Mm -hmm. like being able to like, be a little bit more distant from it by just kind of sitting with yourself in silence is really important. And it just doesn't, like you said, it just is like such a rare, um, seemingly is more of a rare occurrence today than it really ever has been in human history. Yeah, I mean, and I think people can go their whole life on autopilot if they are not careful to take some time to do that. Um, I think it's extremely important and it's good for stress to be able to um, do that. And I think so much around our culture and social media is predicated on socialization for attention instead of connection. And connections what's really going to be important for your health like when you truly connect with people physically emotionally like you know your brain makes all these chemicals like serotonin and dopamine that are important for you to feel good and we don't get the same kind of um thing from social media uh if you like are, catch yourself checking likes or something you just posted it's kind of like you you feel like you're like kind of on a drug bend. Like you're just like, oh yeah, yeah. Like it's very anxious. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're with somebody you care about, just having a nice conversation, it's a very different feeling. So that's such a big part of health. Yeah, no, totally. And and I mean, um, let me pivot back to to nutrition here in a second. But the, uh, yeah, it really is like, I don't know if if you've ever are familiar with the book, like the coddling of the American mind, but, like Jonathan Haidt, he's a psychologist, he dives really deep into the ways that, uh, like, social media is literally, like, it's driving people insane at a really young age, and it's, and it's interesting, too, because he's, he's a Harvard psychologist, and he's looking at all the data on how, um, how it affects, like, young boys and young girls, and it affects them differently, too, because a lot of, like, what he was saying is that a lot of young girls will, like, and it's, and it's related, he was talking about how it's related to, you know, socialization, and there's, it's really complicated, but he's saying, like, young boys are more likely to, like, go after each other physically, um, but young girls will go after each other's reputation online, 
and like it's it's crazy like the amount like the suicide rates are like spiking like 300 percent like self-harm like all this stuff you know and like i'm going into education and i'm kind of like on this train right now where i'm like i need to not be on social media at all and i you know and but you have to toe that line you have to be able to have like some sort of presence but it's really hard to like figure out a way to do it in a, in a way that's healthy and like adding to the world. You know, it's okay. like, that's a conversation I have all the time with myself. I'm like, okay, is this adding to the world or is it not? And it's like, <laughs> it's difficult to find that line. Yeah, I agree. I resent it so much. And every day, like, you know, minus um, the other parts of the eighties that were a bit backwards. I always wish we could go back because it's so sad because today, yeah, you could opt out of it, but you really can't. No. And especially if you're somebody who, like you or I, likes to create or write or do anything like that and you want to share it, it's so, yeah, it's difficult to opt yeah, out of it. Put classified but, ads. You know, like, what are you going to do? There's no yeah. option. It's such a cheap way of, like, really connecting with people. And I have noticed the whole reputation thing. Like, we don't have nuanced conversations about anything. There's no yeah humanity and uh anything and we could go into a whole rabbit hole about cancel totally. culture oh yeah i mean i i think it kind of pivoting it back to like overall health and you know physical health mental health psychological health it's like people are so on edge people probably aren't you know i saw this thing most people have gained like 30 pounds or something during quarantine or throughout this last year um and mm -hmm. so when that environment too when you're just sitting on your phone a lot probably not working you know, you're more likely to, you know, I know I certainly am. And so like, depending on the day too, it's funny because you can once you kind of like start to see patterns in yourself too. But, you know, like I've had friends just like on both sides, like, you know, usually like both on the far right and far left, people just be like, fuck you. I don't want anything to do with you anymore. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. I really don't care if that's how you want to interact with like my opinion about something. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, it kind of makes me sad because I really do think it comes down to it's like, wow, I kind of I can probably guarantee you that this person is. And again, this is just a, a giant generalization. But, you know, most likely this person's probably not getting the fulfillment they need in their life psychologically or physically that is making them jump down other people's throats online. You know, that's like their dopamine rush in a weird way is feeling mm -hmm. right about something. And yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it's, I mean, we could go so far into, you know, the psychology of punishment and discipline and tribalism and the way, but this whole year, yeah, has been quite, I think, miserable for people. I think people are extremely stressed about their financial situation. I think people are, so many of us who are younger are finally seeing um, the world in a new lens of like oh, injustices of things. Like I grew up pretty sheltered and I'm like, wow, the world is not fair or just and I think people if they're not careful make an identity out of certain beliefs and then stop at that and don't continue to challenge or connect with others but which is I think just important as a person and I think also yeah I mean I'm glad that you don't take that stuff personally though because yeah everything that's like that is just kind of a reflection of something somebody else is going through I try not to and, and I mean I also too it's like I 
I really try and, and I mean, no one's perfect, you know, it's like I make mistakes and I'm, I'm always happy to hear like criticism from people, you know, because um, I think honestly, like that's one of the reasons why I started this podcast was I just wanted to be able to have conversations with people that, you know, we might, you know, it's like you and I might go down, might find ourselves talking about this at a party or at the bar or any of these conversations I've had with people. Um, and the reality is like in real life, most people are totally reasonable for the most part, or at least, or at least willing to, to hear you out, but online behind the screen, it's very different. Um, but yeah, you know, it's like, a, there is like a certain, you know, it's like, I don't want to be like a social pariah for any reason, but at the same time, I think it's like this culture of, you know, you have to think a certain way or you are this automatically is just really, um, it's just silly, you know? And, uh, it's just, yeah. just crazy. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. I agree. Um, so I want to talk about, I want to talk about saturated fat. Okay? okay. I am super, I'm super into this because when I was, I was a chubby middle schooler and a chubby high schooler and I decided I was going to try and lose weight and get in shape. And I did it by eating very, very, very low calorie, low fat food, like tofu veggie sandwiches and like that kind of stuff. And I wasn't getting the new, I thought I was getting the nutrition I needed. Um, but turns out it wasn't until a few years ago, I switched to like a higher protein, high fat, low carb diet. And it's just like really worked for me. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to hear kind of your take on like saturated fat specifically, because it gets such a bad rap. Yeah. So I mean, God, a protein diet, if we're like looking at the lens of weight loss, like you just said, it does come down to the thermodynamics of if you eat more calories than you burn, you will gain mass, whether that be in the form of fat or muscle, depends on so many other factors. And the metabolic rate at which your body burns calories is dependent on the health of your body, like how much you exercise your nutrition. So just because I say calories in, calories out, people think that means only calories matter. And that's not true at all. Mm -hmm. But it is like a simple rule of physics that if you're eating more calories than your body burns, you'll gain weight and vice versa for weight loss. Mm -hmm. So this means that when you read diet or dietetic data, about a diet inducing weight loss and they want to claim it's anything but that that's false there's no other reason you would be like losing weight there's no special thing about like keto or low fat totally. that would make you lose weight it's just the fact that eating in that pattern helped that person eat in a way where they consumed less calories habitually and then they lost weight from that um, that being said, saturated fat is such a huge, huge um, topic in nutrition. And like, obviously there's like plant-based camps who think it's like the worst thing ever. And then we have the carnivore diet over here with keto. I think to, it's best to fall somewhere in the middle. So the Nobel Prize in 19, we used to think that uh, it's such a big part of saturated fat is talking about heart disease because it's the number one killer in the US still. So um, we used to believe that Dietary cholesterol is what caused our lipid, our blood cholesterol to rage, it's like your LDL or your HDL, which is your bad, quote unquote, and good cholesterol. Um, and the 1981 Nobel Prize disproved that it was actually saturated fat that caused an increase in blood cholesterol. And so for so long, we had these models that increases in blood cholesterol increased heart disease. Now, I believe this too, and I actually 
there's a lot of great research to that as well. Um, but such a massive epidemiological study that they re-reviewed, I think it was 2009 and 2001, I forget the years, but it's Ramsden et al. And we did an entire unit on this nutrition last semester about how they studied these studies from, I think it was Michigan and Minnesota in the 70s that showed, okay, yeah, when you eat more saturated fat, your um, blood cholesterol goes up. That was true. But the second half of the study showed there was no association be between risks of cancer and heart disease just because your cholesterol increased. So it kind of completely disproved the model we previously had. Um, and it was quite a big deal. So controversially, um, they've act there's actually been quite a few studies now too about how, because upon recommending low saturated fat, we've now decided seed oil and vegetable oil is the replacement for that in everything. It's a massive industry, yeah, vegetable oil, everything, corn oil, oils and everything. Like it's, it's, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, it's just, it's surprising. I, I mean, it's, it's like, the way I see it is that shit has grown, it's mass produced, it's going to be really low nutritional quality. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that, you know, I think that's also needs to be taken into consideration too. like the, um, the difference in nutrition that you're getting between something that is grown at such a large, like agro, like an agribusiness scale, you know, versus something that um, is natural you know? Yeah. yeah. So vegetable oil and all that, and even olive oil and all these kind of plant oils, they, um, they're polyunsaturated or monounsaturated fats. But what we found was they also create these things called oxlams, which are oxidative species that, um, actually increased people's risk of cardiovascular disease because there's two proponents to the risk of cardiovascular disease model. It is increased cholesterol, which obviously eventually builds up in your arteries and causes blockages, but also inflammation. And so there's things in your diet, if you're eating a plant-based diet, which actually can be congruent with more inflammation. So my takeaway from this at the end of the semester wasn't necessarily like that, you know, you should be going all, you putting sticks of butter in your coffee, you don't need to be doing that, or completely swearing off any kind of vegetable oil. But it definitely was a second look at saturated fat not necessarily being the culprit as to why people are suffering from heart disease at such high rates. Mm -hmm. And again, this is what comes back to how massively individualistic people are. So your liver is what processes all these things. Um, you know, you'll, you have lipoproteins. Um, that get processed in your liver, created in your liver, like cholesterol, which is the LDL, and you'll have good and bad. Usually when your bad raises, your good can too, though, and you want both. Um, yeah. You want the good cholesterol as well. So that's, that's the flip side of intaking saturated fat. But, um, you know, there's people we've seen that actually like dietary cholesterol really does affect their lipid cholesterol, but then a lot of people it doesn't. And so again, your liver has over millions of, or sorry, not millions, thousands of pathways for metabolizing drugs, fat, all kinds of um, compounds. And these pathways are actually very genetically inherited and different. So again, I think the best way to approach your fat intake is if you can pay attention to what is going on. So I grew up in a family, my, we don't, 
eat a lot of, we don't overeat. We don't eat a lot of sugar. My mom buys like deers and we eat a lot of like fatty stews. Me and my mom's blood work, I have extremely low cholesterol, saturated fat. So does she, she, this woman eats like sticks of butter. And so, but that doesn't mean that would be the necessary recommendation for somebody suffering from hypertension and heart disease. But that being said, I think with saturated fat to like answer your question, it's not, there's a lot of research emerging and it's developing that it's not as bad as we thought it was. Mm-hmm. And I think that sourcing and your overall scope of your diet's important as well as caloric intake. So probably the, the reason you lost weight had nothing to do with fat. It had to do with calories. Right. And I think the reason people associate fat with gaining fat is there's four or sorry, there's three macronutrients. Um, so protein and carbohydrates are four calories a gram. Fat is nine. So it's very, it carries a lot of energy. Yeah. It's calorically dense, but that does not mean it's bad for you. On the flip side with keto though, I've noticed people, we've gone from demonizing fat in the nineties to now demonizing carbohydrates. That's a whole nother rabbit hole. (laughs) Well, I want to talk about um, inflammation and like what, so what are some signs, like you point back to kind of like the, like, and and this kind of makes sense too, because when I did switch, when I did switch diets, like, you know, it's a lot of personal experimentation. Like it took me years to kind of figure out like what foods um, like really, like really make me feel a certain way. Like what makes me bloated, what gives me like gas or like makes me, my stomach upset or, um, and so it's like, it took me a lot of experimentation, but like, I would like, what would you say to someone who's trying to fix their diet? Like, what are some of the markers in, of inflammation or just like physical markers that you might want them to look out for in terms of, of food? I mean, okay. The presence of autoimmune conditions in themselves indicate inflammation. I would say indigestion. I would say any kind of pain or fatigue with like your joints or muscles. And those are big ones. And then I believe through blood work, you know, there's special markers for inflammation, like certain kind of antibodies or like white blood cell counts. Um, If you're malnourished, but eating enough food, it could be indicative that your gut has some kind of inflammation going on because you're not absorbing things. Um, The most common autoimmune condition we see these days is hypothyroidism. Levothyroxine is, I think, the third most prescribed drug in all of the United States, which is synthetic thyroid hormone, because so many people suffer from hypothyroidism. And I believe most of the time it is autoimmune-caused Hajimoto's, and that means your body is creating antibodies against your own thyroid, which is indicative of some type of inflammation and autoimmune response. So definitely thyroid blood panels are extremely important to look at because it's like the most proliferative autoimmune condition you can get. But yeah, like coming back to what I said, even when we were talking about mental health, sitting with your body and knowing like what's going on and how you're feeling is really how you're going to be able to tell what's working for you and what's not. Because even when they have like doctors, when you have IBS or Crohn's, they'll usually put you on a very strict elimination diet. Mm -hmm. They'll ask you, hey, add back this thing one by one and see how you react. Because even people with the same disease don't have the same dietary triggers and can tolerate very different things. Yeah. And I think that should be kind of 
kind of like the litmus test for everyone when they're finding out, hey, how do I feel when I eat this? Yeah, when people go to, um, like when they're trying to figure out, you know, like if you have an, going on an elimination diet, what kind of would you start with? What food group? Like, um, I guess it'd be individual for any individual person. But would you yeah, yeah, God, that's so hard. If we're talking about like autoimmune conditions, um, because the thing about elimination diets that I want to say, like coming back to them, um, just putting everything together, start with the vegetables and drinking water before, like start with the very basic tenets of health before you venture into elimination diets. Mm-hmm. And this even comes back to, I think like financial privilege. Like I work at the food bank and we obviously give out wheat bread and milk and that is good enough or the people that can afford that because that does have nutrients in it. We don't have the financial tools here for them to oh, do an yeah, elimination diet. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's the bed. So we focus on what you can first with that. You have the privilege and the ability and the finances to go to an elimination diet. And you've like gotten down the basic tenets of like, Hey, I'm eating enough nutrients, enough calories and vegetables. Mm-hmm. Then you move to elimination. And commonly there's something called that I think is pretty good is like autoimmune protocol diets. Um, and you know, you don't need to go get, take, get rid of everything on them. And there's so much nuance to be had because these things are not maintainable long run, my personal opinion. And so, yeah, when you go on one of these, it's to see, it's to get your symptoms under control. And then you are supposed to always reintroduce stuff back because you want to be able to eat or have as many options as you can. You don't want to be stuck with like rice water for the rest of your life. Right. So it's very important that I think people fail to realize. I think it can also contribute to people having like a fear of food or development of eating disorders. So these things should really be done under a professional's care. But yeah, things people often um, go to eliminate first with um, autoimmune diets is uh, caffeine and alcohol, certain kinds of grains, um, things that contain like lignans and stuff like wheat, beans, um, legumes, things that have, there's, plants are very good for you. And I think you should eat as many as you can, but plants do contain things in them that are compounds that evolutionarily they created that are not digestible. Mm -hmm. Um, and almost will create autoimmune responses in some people because they'll irritate your gut wall. Um, which can cause autoimmune responses because once your gut wall has gaps in the gap junctions of it, bigger things can get through into the bloodstream and your body, it'll mount an immune response. And this is what causes autoimmunity. And so things like nightshades and certain grains can be irritants for people. That doesn't mean don't eat these forever because there's a lot of nutrients in these kinds of things too. But again, it's starting off with those and then finding out what you can tolerate and what you can't. Um, I want to talk about alcohol for a second because I, I read this thing. It was it was like the CDC or was it the CDC? Whatever the uh, the major resource, national resource for health that we have, like recommended, like lowered their recommended alcohol consumption. And that's this has just been interesting for me too because I've been like I've been doing a powerlifting routine for the last four mm-hmm. months, and. I have I have this fitness tracker that shout out to uh, to Whoop who I will never ever sponsor this podcast because no one will ever listen to it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, I mean it's it's really interesting to see the way my body reacts to alcohol. Even if I have like two beers, like 
you know, like before I go to sleep or after I work out versus not doing any of that. And uh, I just kind of wanted to get your take on, especially with like maybe like in a gym context or for people who are trying to get into fitness, like what would you say is like a healthy amount to drink? Um, it probably affects people differently too, but I'm just kind of yeah. thoughts. Yeah, this is so um, like, I've only been drunk once in my life. I don't drink at all, which is like, I guess a really fun party fact for people. They think it's so weird. I just don't so you're super drink. Powered. Yeah, I don't drink at all. So I have not spent a whole lot of time um, experimenting with it, mm -hmm. um, like far as fitness. I think personally, I don't see really many benefits to alcohol. Um, yeah. There are some epidemiological studies that shows like a moderate amount like helps people with actually quite a few like issues like you've heard about things in wine or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, I have not looked into that too much because I've never found it personally applicable. I think people should look at that with their own discretion though. Mm -hmm. That being said, I think the ideal amount, I don't think it's necessary to have it all. Like I don't think there's a whole lot of benefits to it. I agree. Of course though, I think people are people and everybody should have some kind of fun and live their life, especially totally. for stress. So I think, I think it's again, individualistic, like feeling how you feel. I think it's maybe not an everyday thing. And I think keeping it to the smallest amount possible while still enjoying your life would be honestly the perfect like way to go with it. Um, and then the type of alcohol you consume, like whatever kind makes you feel the best. I know the lowest calorie and usually the easiest people is like clear liquor. I know people can have digestive issues with Locked beer. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think people also like paying attention to habitually what you do around alcohol. Cause if it's always impairing your sleep and causing you to overeat or you use like really high calorie mixers with it, um, if you're struggling with losing weight too, like so many people, I don't think realize like how many calories are in alcohol. And if you're somebody who can put back 10 beers to get drunk, like you will just, yeah, yeah. But also just like not realizing like that's a lot of like calories that aren't providing any nutrition for your body. So I think it's everybody's own discretion of like what's going to make them feel good. But I think obviously in your 20s, nobody's really paying attention to how it makes them feel. They just kind of want to get hammered. And you know what? Once in a while, it's fuck it. Fuck it. But yeah, if it's something you're passionate about, like getting your health in order. I think getting alcohol to the smallest amount possible is like always the ideal. Like I don't think place in people's regimen. Totally. Yeah, I noticed like with this, my little fitness app, it like tracks my sleep really well. And even after two beers, like my heart rate variability will be super low the next day. Like sometimes like a 20 or 30% drop and like my sleep, like my sleep graph of my heart, my resting heart rate will be like over 60, which is mm -hmm. it's crazy. Cause usually it's like at 50 or 51. Mm -hmm. and it's just, you know, it's interesting, like to be able to look at it, that data and say, oh, wow. Okay. I see a pattern here. Um, I also, I kind of want to touch on like fasting. Cause again, I, you know, I, I like kind of want to hit like the major trends, you know, people are always talking about fasting. People are recommending not eating until, um, a certain time. And, and like, I just came off of this, this program where I was eating like 4,500 calories a day, like all just cause I was trying to gain weight. Um, 
but now I'm like feeling a lot better because I'm just kind of waiting to eat. You know, I'm waiting till like 11, 1130 and just really just eating when I'm hungry. And is that like intuitively that feels right, but yeah. like what, yeah, is that so? Um, so fasting, like, you know, when you're studying dietetics, it's so I, I'm like always trying to look at things through like a really multidisciplinary approach. So when I look at a diet, not only do I look at like its direct benefits or lack of thereof, or its nutritional benefits, I look at behavioral stuff. I look at like financial capability. I look at adherence. So things like fasting are always a little concerning to me just because of people like eating disorders are a really prevalent mental issue with people. And so it wouldn't be something that I recommend to anyone with a history of that. Um, that or fasting. Um, and I think I put a link in the Google doc and I can send you any links on like any studies if you want to put them out oh, there. Yeah, but, um, yeah, yeah. So it was kind of like, there's a few categories of people that fasting might not be awesome for. Like if you have some kind of hypoglycemia, like low blood sugar or any kind of things that's going to cause you to, like where you need to eat often, not so great. But again, it's using your own discretion to what feels good. So if you feel good going long periods of time without eating and then having larger meals, there's not a lot of I think the only downsides to fasting would be a mental com behavioral component for eating disorders. Yeah. People who will get low blood sugar. So any kind of diabetic hyperglycemia, hypoglycemia, any kind of thing where you're going to feel faint, I would avoid it. And then digestive issues, because if you have a lot of calories to eat and your fasting window is so small, you might like, you know, that might be hard to digest like a massive meal. Like if you're only getting a little bit throughout the day or, you know, you're on like a, a cheeseburger isn't going to make you feel better. You know? Yeah, because at the end of the day, um, fasting, uh, you know, can be good for some people, but it's really important what you're eating and how many calories you're eating. Like, because I know a lot of people do things for weight loss. So Fasting is not going to help you if you're still overeating the amount of calories you're supposed to have in a, a daily allotment in that time. Yeah. In addition to that, um, most of the, there's so much research going on and I'm sure it will evolve by next week, but most of the majority of literature as of right now shows like a lot of the benefits claimed for fasting are ubiquitous with just calorie restriction. So fasting, mm -hmm. like you know, autophagy and all those things you can actually also obtain by just calorie restriction in itself. Right. So we can't fully attribute most of these benefits to fasting yet. Yeah. We might be able to in the future, but a lot of it you can just get from eating lower calories to begin with, mm -hmm. um, which are just natural side effects of calorie restriction, yeah. um, which obviously would happen, uh, because you're fasting people tend to eat less calories if you can only eat for a certain amount of the day yeah i think it's interesting like again kind of going back to like a like kind of like a the broad sort of place we're at right now too it's like issues people kind of are i think gravitate towards this idea that you see it with like primal diet and paleo diet and like mm -hmm. there's some truth to the idea i think that you know fifty thousand years ago you eat when you can and you eat as much as you can when you can, and then you're probably going to wait, you know, for until you can kill something, basically. Um, mm -hmm. And 
like I think like I guess I just want to get your take on and and this might be like too big of a of a of a topic but like how have how has our how have our bodies changed based on the recent based on what research you know like within the last like 500 years like with the advent of like everyone eating kind of like monocrop foods and like what what has that done to us like over overall like as a as a species i guess yeah that's hard to say because i don't do too much research in anthropology but i think most of the merit is actually not as much as you think Mm -hmm. and um i think a good example of that is uh lactose intolerance because um you know basically the agriculture and raising of dairy cows for milk drinking is Relatively new in the scheme of things, obviously thousands of years, but and we still about over 60% of adults don't produce the enzyme lactase to properly break down lactose still. And so I think that's globally, and I know that certain um, demographics of people like um, Black people or African Americans even have lower rates of being able to produce that because I think that just goes with like. Um, geographically like where we had that type of agriculture and we didn't in the last thousands of years but so I think the evolution's quite slow on that um, so not a whole lot but um, it's, it's interesting to even like just think about like how I, I read a book called Guns, Germs, and Steel which is actually they touched on this because one of the uh, one of the topics he was he was an anthropologist the guy who wrote it and he was talking about how in Asian cultures, they didn't drink like water buffalo and the animals that they used as um, as basically like like work animals. They didn't have good tasting milk, and they didn't like it was just they, there was an abundance of other food sources. And so in yeah. in Europe, we kind of developed a uh, um, a relationship with like dairy cows and this kind of thing, which is totally different. And you know, it's it's just interesting how something like like dairy which you assume that everyone can eat and consume and that's in basically everything is uh probably going to be really hard for certain i mean like you said certain ethnic mm-hmm. groups or certain cultures or most people yeah because there's like if you think about it evolutionarily there's no premise or, necess- or necessity for people to consume dairy past infantry so children when you're a baby, you make lactase, which is the enzyme for lactose, but most adults don't because we didn't, we're not drinking our own milk at that age. Um, we started like, guy who had to try, yeah. he had to try the cow udder, you know, like 50,000 years. God, it's, you gotta have to know what that tastes like. Yeah. And I believe different um, ethnicities still even have uh, different issues with metabolizing things like alcohol. So, and then we have things like blue zones where, I mean, I know there's a lot of research on like Eskimo cultures who eat very high saturated fat and actually have lower incidence of like heart disease and atherosclerosis. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, I think that the genetic like change on that has been quite slow and there's still a lot of inheritable traits that make it individualistic. It's very, like what you're saying, it's very, um, very dependent on like the population. And I mean, that's probably one of the issues too that I think we're probably kind of running into in the United States is that, you know, we are like, we're not like Japan. Like, you know, it's not like 99% of us are Japanese, you know, it's like we come, people come from all over the world here yeah. and, and our food is just such a, uh, like, it's just everything, you know, it's like, there's not, 
like I guess you know earlier in the podcast I was talking about like the standard American diet but even that you know what is that now it's like it's different like how I was conceiving it was kind of like like I grew up eating processed food is sort of like <laughs> what I think of when I think of the American diet it's like what comes from a can hamburger helper what comes comes from a box like um but yeah it's 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 a it's just such a broad um and this is what, what's what makes make nutrition in this conversation so interesting is that we don't like it's just kind of all uncharted territory you know in in many ways like sciences in general but you know we know so little about like what you're saying even with gut health like who knows what we're gonna learn in the next five years like it's just always changing it is always changing yeah and that's why i think it's best for people to just start out with like some very basic tenants like maybe somebody on the carnivore diet maybe the only person to refute this but eating an enough servings of vegetables, you probably are not going to go wrong with that or drinking enough water um, and stuff like that. And so I think achieving basic tenants before getting fancy is really important. And then I think from there, if you're trying to tweak things, it's about really listening to your body. So I really don't get in a camp with any kind of diet. And, um, you know, I've helped friends who are devout vegans, like, you know, work on their diets and stuff. I have eaten meat my whole life and plan to continue to do so, but I still believe that you can achieve a healthy diet with veganism and, you know, et cetera. So it's just really up to the individual, what they're going to enjoy doing behaviorally and also what feels good for them. And then also biologically, like what's going on. Um, I mean, it even comes down to a clinical level. Like if you are um, a kidney patient on dialysis, you have to be extremely um, religious about how you intake potassium because you suffer from possible hypnotremia and hyperalkemia because your, um, your kidneys can't really process things. You can't eat bananas and potatoes. And so it's so individualistic. I think really stop, I think, there's so much flashy with the culture of like gym culture online. Everybody's like, Oh, I want the newest supplement. I want the quick fix. It's because it's this instant gratification of feeling like you're buying your goal. Like, I feel like I can buy this promise of like looking good, being sexy, being healthy. And there's nothing really sexy about, Hey, you should probably just eat some broccoli and go sit outside in the sun with a banana today. Like, but it's really where people should be beginning. I think people try to run a marathon before walking out their front door with it. And yeah. It's not incentivized really by, uh, by like our current culture and our current moment, you know, like you said, like that instant gratification and, and seeing people who see comparing yourselves to people all the time. Like, it's just really damaging. Like what if, what is like one, I kind of hate to do this type of like question, but I'm just curious, like if you yeah. could have, if there was like one or two kind of like trends right now that you would say are probably like the most, like the most harmful that you see probably on social media that people are engaging in or like willingly kind of buying into, um, like, is there one that kind of stands out to you at all or? Like dietetic wise or just? Yeah, di well, dietetic wise, but you know, related to, to, uh, to kind of just like overall like health and wellness culture. God, um, that's so hard to say. I get irritated at everything. Obviously, I've had my heyday with the It Works Saran Wrap Keto Coffee people um, with the MLM schemes. I really, I think it's the capitalization and commodification of health because there's a product for everything and a quick fix. And so our consumer culture wants to buy, buy, buy all these fixes when that's not the answer at all 
and then so these are I guess really broad instead of just trends mm -hmm. in themselves but all trends can be put under these two umbrellas and then also that and dogmatism and identity Terry that's not even a word but people using nutrition as an identity like I'm a vegan I'm a crossfitter I'm keto like right. no for a person this is how you eat like and I feel like people then kind of put on blinders to really being open about like achieving health because they get really dogmatic about a way of eating which is quite weird if you truly think about it it totally is and in the way too um you know it's like i follow i follow like probably four or five people on instagram that are uh like i follow like steffi cohen she's like the you know such a she's a badass she's like the world record female power lifter and like people like that who actually like are good at what they do and have like important like she's a doctor of physiology so you know i trust her opinion so I try and follow people like that, but then, you know, you go to your search, like the little search thing. And because I follow like five of these people and I'm like watching their videos and engaging with what they're doing, every single, like literally every single um, like suggested thing is like some, some bullshit related. Oh yeah. No, like what all the G strings with the bang energy drinks and. Yeah. And it's, it's yeah. like, it's so hard. I couldn't imagine being like, you know, I, I'm kind of an idiot with it. Like I'm always trying to learn, you know, but um. I couldn't imagine being like an awkward 17 or 18 year old who's mm -hmm. trying to get in shape and is being kind of just bombarded with this. And there's a lot of people too on, not just on Instagram, but like on Twitter, like everywhere, you know, where they're like, Hey, you know, join my program for, you know, join my like six week program. It's like, dude, there's a million six week programs out there that don't require some guy telling you what to do, you know, that mm -hmm. are probably better for you. So that are just, free. That are free. And, and, it's just so interesting the way that like this whole business, like you said, it's like capitalizing on people's insecurity and it's really keeping people from, from figuring out like how their body works, you know, like mm -hmm. everyone's bodies are so different. Like I have extremely long legs and I'm tall. So it's like, yeah, it's like I had to learn the hard way by squatting way more than I could and slipping a disc. Like, but, you know, you're, like, around, you know, you, you kind of get, pe people get this, like, one size, like, everyone's the same, everyone can be like this, everyone can't, and it just, it's, like, it's so harmful, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, it's ridiculous, I can't tell you how many lovely friends of mine who are already, like, doing pretty well, um, want to go further, so they join, like, uh, some kind of program where these coaches who have no formal education, take all their money, give them a 1200 calorie meal plan and tell them, Hey, let's take SARMs or something like that. It's ridiculous. Um, and that's why I think it's so, 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 so important to look at the credentials of people you're learning from. Yeah. Um, and honestly, the best people will put out so much information for free. The people like there's so many, if, like the more educated people are, the more information they do put out for free. Mm -hmm. And then also important to work with professionals. Um, usually your GP or your family doctor is not the best person to get detailed nutrition info from because doctors actually don't have to take that many units in school for it. Right. But um, there's so much information for free if you follow the right people. Um, I think there's a few people I could name that I've always liked to follow is I think yeah. Link Norton and like Dr. Rhonda Patrick and I think some other lady named Astrid, a lot of di female dietitians. Um, you know, there's a lot of di dietitians that work in like helping women with hormone issues and PCOS. Like there's just really look for registered dietitian or like a sufficient yeah. amount of education. 
There are some people with just an NASM CPT that are okay. I would usually leave that to getting training plans because I know a few personal trainers who do do dietary recommendations and they it's not really for that. Right. Um, yeah, there's some dumbasses out there and it's really, it is based on the person. There's some yeah. people who are trainers that actually know what they're talking about too though, so. Well, it's this idea too that like what works for me works for everyone else, you know, and like. Yes. It's, uh, <laughs> I was listening to, um, God, what was it? What's his name? He was, he was on Joe Rogan the other day, the Mark sister. And he's like a health and wellness, like older guy, but he looks, I mean, he's like 75 and looks really young and he's talking, you know, about what he does. And he was talking about how, um, and this kind of like hit me close to home. Cause I was like, just in this, but you know, like I was on a powerlifting, the powerlifting, uh, program I was on, like literally the guy who wrote it and, you know, he's like a professional, is like, you need to eat, you know, pound and a half of ground beef a day, 12 eggs a day, blah, blah, blah. You need to eat double cheeseburgers. You just need to eat as much as you can. And I was like, okay, like, I don't really want to eat all that crap because like, I know it's going to affect my sleep. Like I will try and eat as much as possible because I know that that's, you know, required for the amount of strain I'm putting on my body. But, you know, during this podcast, he's like, yeah, like there's so many guys in the gym who like to eat so much that they will destroy, they'll destroy their longevity to mm -hmm. be able to be big in the short term. Mm -hmm. and, be, and even, you know, and it's like, it doesn't make sense. It's like, you have to think about how you're going to be, how do you want your joints to be when you're 65? You know, oh, yeah. like, like that type of, you, people need to think like long-term about this because this is their body. It's like, they're, this is your life. Yeah, there's a lot of science now that there's a difference between eating for longevity and eating for performance. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes there's kind of, there's, you can have the, a decent amount of both, but there's a fork in the road where if you really want to go balls to the wall with one or the other, it's very different lifestyles and eating patterns. Yeah. Um, honestly, anyone who says this is what I do and you should do this, avoid. Because yeah. yeah. any professional that's going to work with you in dietetics will not be telling you what they ate for breakfast. Totally. It's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. And, um, you know, when people ask me, oh, what do you do? I'm like, you know, this is, I'll sometimes tell people, but it'll be like, this isn't for you. Like you don't, you shouldn't copy that. Um, even down to the amount of calories I eat or something. So there's so many young men who like, are like, I've had come to me and be like, Oh, I read this in a bodybuilding magazine, or I read this from here. Or, this guy does this and this is his plan. And it's very detailed and specific to one person. And I'm just like, you know, a lot of these men have been doing this for several years are on some kind of drug. It's very common. And even if they're not, it's anecdotal. Like it doesn't, we, that's not how science operates is that Bob said he did this. So therefore everybody should do this. It's just not how that works. I also know too, it's like, especially when it comes to anything that any type of like print journal, like it's so easy to say, oh yeah, you know, uh, so-and-so, uh, like we're going to do a piece on like so-and-so's diet and not, not basically have any input from like the athlete or the person and basically just do like like there's actually no evidence in a lot of in a lot of these situations that that's the actual person giving this advice you yeah know, it's really easy to just like it's like oh okay cool yeah I could start a web page and be like this is what Arnold ate leading up to Mr. Olympia and people would be interested and click on it I don't actually have to know what the fuck he ate you know what I mean no. like I could just take a guess and there's a lot of that shit out there um, yeah I'm, I'm curious about artificial sweeteners yeah, that's such a big topic. Um, we, I did that a literal, 
a little lab on that last quarter. And so there's a few conflicting studies. Um, and there's a f it's really hard, too, because there's quite a few different kinds. We have things like sugar alcohols, like xylitol and erythritol. We have aspartame, we have sucralose, we have stevia. And so kind of my personal opinion on it is obviously if you can avoid them, that's always best. Mm -hmm. But if we're dealing with people who need to clinically lose weight and it would help you to be able to still have something sweet without the calories or the sugar, then I think they are a decent tool for that. I think um, I think a lot of the science that shows that they raise your blood sugar or cause um, insulin resistance shows that it's when you eat it with something dense in carbohydrates and sugar at the same time, it will do that. So if I were to drink a glass of green tea and put stevia in it, it will not have any effect on my blood sugar. If I were to drink a glass of like green tea and put stevia or sucralose with a chocolate chip cookie, then it does cause an elevation in blood sugar. So that's the consensus of the science that I've read so far in class for that. Um, again, gut health, very unknown how it affects it. We know that some people have a hard time digesting things like the sugar alcohols, like erythritol and aspartame cause people's stomach upset, where some things like sucralose or stevia, there's not as much issues with it. Um, I usually think that stevia or sucralose fare well with people a little bit better. There's less stuff out there of having it have issues. So if you have to do an artificial sweetener, I would choose one of those two. If you can avoid them for the most part, that's awesome because, you know, even habitually, like you can, sugar's not actually addictive, like cocaine or a, like a psychotropic drug, but it's habitually addictive. And so even if you're using artificial sweeteners and constantly that sweet taste, it's going to, it can habitually and behaviorally for some people cause them to keep overeating in other realms, thus negating the purpose of low calorie sweeteners. So I think the consensus on that for myself is moderation. And if you're having like digestive issues, there's, if you're in consuming a lot of them, something to look at a lot of the data, same things like aspartame and that stuff causing cancer. We have only done it on rats and we feed them like 300 times the amount a person would even eat in a serving. So it's not very strong yet to support that it's going to give you cancer. I mean, she drinks like 20 Diet Cokes a day. So obviously, you know. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I would not recommend doing thing. that. <laughs> Just for like, you. That's the ideal male body right there. Come on. No. And I mean, I'm like, as me, I'm human. I enjoy artificial sweeteners and a few different kinds of drinks too. Like I put yeah. stevia in my tea or my oatmeal. Like I'm, I like sweet shit. But I mean, ideally, it's not like what I should always be doing. But again, you're human. Like if you, you, you have to have something that you have to have, like, you know, yeah. your place, you, you can't, you can't, everyone's got their guilty pleasures, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so kind of like the last thing, it, like, I really kind of want to touch on, um, like you have, you have this in the notes, you talk about food matrixes, and I just kind of want to like dive into what that is and how, just kind of how it works a little bit for everybody. Yeah, um, is that the part of the, because I was kind of like, I was copy and pasting some lab reports from oh, last yeah, part yeah. of the, well, uh, is that where I was talking about um, how things are digested differently depending on what they're contained in? Yes, like, okay. uh, yeah, so it says food matrixes are important to consider in cardiometabolic health because nutrients, nutrients they consider detrimental or healing do ex not exist in a vacuum. So it kind of like, I think it kind of goes with what you're saying before where, 
you know, people think of like food as like, okay, you have like one healthy thing doesn't cancel out an unhealthy thing. Like it could actually be that that unhealthy thing makes the healthy thing less healthy. And it's like, you're mm -hmm. just eating an unhealthy thing. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. So like a great example of this is people decided in the last few years, carbohydrates and sugar are evil. And so we get people that are asinine enough to be like, oh yeah, fruit's bad for you now because it has sugar. An example of the food matrix to consider is the difference between a Jolly Rancher and an apple. Yes, they both contain sugar, um, gram for gram, sometimes even the same amount, depending on like the serving size of each you would have. Mm -hmm. And yes, your body does um, metabolize glucose and fructose and sucrose itself the same exact way. So people could get like, oh, it doesn't matter which one. It does though, because what does an apple have that a Jolly Rancher doesn't have? It has nutrients and it has fiber, which drastically change the way you are going to digest it as a whole. So overall in people's diets, context is everything, which is why no macronutrient is bad or good. Like we really, anything that's like carbs are bad or fat is bad. I would throw that to the wind because it's completely inaccurate. Yeah. And um, look at the overall context of your diet. So long as most of what you're eating is nutritious and makes you feel good, then a few treats here and there are fine. And there's no specific food that's good or evil. And I feel like a lot of diet culture surrounds like actually giving like a moral standpoint on a food, like right. this is bad, like, or good, like, okay, like a Jolly Rancher robbed a bank and killed his mom. Like, that's not how that works. Um, I see people do that with carbs a lot. Yeah. But what I will say is, uh, I think keto has its uh, points in some people. Like we, the only medical use we found for keto as a date if I'm up to date on stuff, shit may have changed in the last three months that I looked at this. I'll have my for epilepsy. Uh, yeah, for epilepsy. Um, we use it for epilepsy, keto. We found that it helps with people's seizures. Um, besides that, uh, it's not necessary at all to lose weight. Um, some people feel better on high fat than high carb, and it's totally up for you to decide. Um, but I will say this, if most people, if you're doing intense exercise, like weightlifting or sprinting, carbohydrates are your friend. They're your brain's first choice of fuel. They are good for you. You should be eating them. There's good sources of them that are like sweet potatoes, rice, fruit, vegetables. Like it, those aren't bad. And I've seen so many people become deathly afraid of carbohydrates for no reason. And it's quite unfortunate. Yeah, I ran into that. Um, like, I basically plateaued at the gym, and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't running as fast as I was. I wasn't, and I realized I was like, oh yeah, it's because you're not, you're not eating hardly any carbohydrates. Your body needs fuel if you're going to be working out, you know, like this. And and so yeah, then I just started switching to like rice and like what you said, sweet potatoes and a lot of that, and mm -hmm. um, it helped a lot. You know, it like made honestly, it made like my, the entire difference. Like I kept oh yeah, came and just added calories and carbs. So exercise, when I'm walking around the block, that's aerobic exercise because I'm intaking enough oxygen to undergo um, processes. So your body's energy currency that's made in your mitochondria, going back to, you know, sixth grade biology is ATP. It's adenosine triphosphate. Mm -hmm. And everything you consume, like all the kinds of macros and calories you consume, ultimate job is to create ATP for your cells to use for energy. Um, when you're doing anaerobic exercise, which is like short 
twitch muscle fast kind of um, things like sprinting or weightlifting, your body doesn't have time to create or metabolize fat to make ATP. It actually uses creatine phosphate first and then glycolysis, which means it uses glucose. It breaks down glucose and glycogen in your muscle to create energy quickly for you and in a sufficient amount. So we act, there is quite a few studies um, on PubMed. And I know that people try to refute, refute this too. And I'd be interesting to see where the science goes. But as of right now, it has been shown that being in ketosis in, impairs your ability to perform anaerobic fast paced exercise because you don't have the glycogen and glucose stores that somebody consuming enough carbohydrates would to perform those kind of exercises. Yeah. Also with keto, one last thing I wanna say is they say, oh, well, it cr increases your rate of burning fat. That is true because you are consuming more fat. So it balances itself out exactly metabolically. There is nothing about keto that will make you lose more weight than the same diet um, with carbohydrates at the same amount of calories comes into calories in calories out it really does come back to that but i it's very irritating when people stop there and do things like if it fits your macros and then just eat pop torts all day too because that's stupid yeah <laughs> like I mean, for all other parts of health yeah maybe i'll save that maybe for like my last year of life i'll just eat whatever the fuck i want i kind of i know, mean oh go ahead no yeah i mean like exactly do all the drugs eat all the food it just bugs me that like chimpanzees can eat as much sugar as they want. Like it just bugs me that we got kind of like the short end of like the evolutionary stick in that way. Like we process, we store, you know, we eat sugar, it turns to fat. We eat too much sugar, it turns, turns to fat. And like chimpanzees will just, you can eat, they'll eat like bags of Skittles at the zoo or whatever, like all day long and stay just like jacked. Yeah. I mean, different metabolic needs, like our brains became the size that they did because we started eating more fat and protein. So yeah, I mean, it's not sugar, too much sugar that turns fat, it's just too much calories, period. But I mean, the reason why the what you're eating is important is because the kind of food you're eating really does affect your hormones. Mm -hmm. So if your blood sugar is constantly going like up and down, up and down, it has very negative impacts on your hormones, especially if you're a female, because mm -hmm. unfortunately, our hormone cycles are quite a bit more complicated and finicky. Mm -hmm. And this can cause a lot of people to develop hypothyroidism where you do have a lowered base metabolic rate and then it is harder to lose weight because your body burns less calories. So, you know, calories in, calories out applies to everyone even if you have a metabolic disorder, but having a metabolic disorder does mean that you can not eat as many calories. Yeah. So it's really important to still focus on nutrition and make sure all parts of your body are healthy and hormones. So calories in, calories out can work for you without you losing your goddamn mind because your body only burns 900 calories a day. Totally. And I guess actually, since we, you actually just mentioned this, um, I think it'd be kind of a cool place to sort of wrap up. But like, mm -hmm. what what would be, um, so like for men and women, you know, we have different hormones going through our bodies. And you're mm -hmm. just talking about hormones. What would be like foods for men to avoid? Like I hear you hear soy a lot, you know, like soy will lower your testosterone and, you know, for women you hear like, okay, you want to eat iron because, you know, you're going to be, you have your monthly and all that kind of stuff. So like, what, what is there, uh, is, are those kind of justified claims or? Yeah, I guess. Okay. So it's so individualistic. So soy, the reason we think that is it doesn't lower your testosterone, but um, we think it causes more estrogenic effects because soy is a phytoestrogen, but 
The thing about phytoestrogens is it means it's a plant compound that binds to your estrogen receptor in your body, but just because something binds to a receptor does not mean it increases the activity of that hormone. It just, it can actually increase or decrease depending on how strong the signal is. So there's not a whole lot of research that actually shows that soy is bad for men or causes estrogenic effects. Um, I wouldn't say it's like, and you know, because it's so controversial, it's a kind of fuck around and find out thing. Like see, you know, if you start developing like gynecostoma or from, you know, intaking soy protein, then maybe look at that. But I don't think soy needs to be largely avoided by men. I think the reason that soy might be an issue is because it's such a mass produced crop that for some people it triggers like autoimmune issues. But soy doesn't need to be avoided by men. Um, with women, again, it's so individualistic. It really depends on what's going on. But I think, I think men might be able to tolerate fasting better because they don't have as many complicated cycles going on with blood sugar. I think the biggest thing women can do before getting into individual diets for hormone health is balancing your blood sugar. So make sure you're eating enough and not like, like always pairing protein or fat with it throughout the day. So your baseline of your blood sugar stays normal because every time your blood sugar goes through a huge drop or something, it triggers a cortisol response which also is gonna mess with your other hormones quite a bit. So I think blood sugar control is like the first thing. And then obviously for women, um, you know, making sure you get enough iron and nutrients and there's so many different nutrients to support your cycle is important. And you could get into that because there's so many reproductive disorders. Yeah. It gets so into the weeds. Well, sweet. I feel like I, uh, I learned a lot. People, all right i feel like people who listen to it will too that was like very informative so thank you i'm glad for, uh, yeah thank you for coming on i appreciate all it all right have a good one you too all right bye. see you later bye